We are, uh, <clears throat> we're in verse 15 this morning, Revelation 13, and this is part six. We're doing our, our best to teach our children, especially our youngest children, on the importance of assembling together and why we go to church. And one of them, whose name I will not name, was protesting coming to church. This was yesterday. And... Nicole reminded um, him that I was preaching this morning and he said, but mom, that's too many words. <laughs> so as we embark on part six of Revelation chapter 13, fully recognizing that it's a lot of words, I, I hope and pray that like me, you guys are being challenged by this and my worldview is being impacted by this. I hope yours is as well. Uh, let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you superintend the teaching and the preaching of your word. We don't choreograph it. Father, we don't conspire to try and align themes and purposes in our teaching and preaching, but we just preach your word. And as we come to it, Father, the the themes are overwhelming for us, and Lord, it would be foolish of us to ignore the fact that you are repeating themes for us this morning as we come to your word on the subject matter of worship and idolatry. Pray, Lord, that we would take your word seriously this morning, recognizing <clears throat> it is your word. And Father, as your children, your people, we have an obligation to hear it, to process it, to meditate on it. And Lord, to put it into action and obey it. We ask for your help with that this morning. We ask that the Spirit of God would illuminate truth, Father, that it would be actionable for us, that we would walk away here not having been unchanged by what we read and what we hear. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, so just quick review. We are... Continuing our look at the portrait of the second beast, second half of Revelation 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week, we looked at the deception of the second beast and how it causes the world to worship the first beast with the utilization of signs and wonders. We'll look at verse 15 this morning, just one verse, as we look at the worshipers of the beast and the enemies of the beast that are highlighted for us in verse 15. Um, just a quick review from what we covered last week in verses 13 and 14. It's The scripture says this, It, that is the second beast, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. We looked last week at these signs. We talked about it in Sunday school. The Lord Jesus reminded the contemporaries of his day that a wicked generation seeks after a sign. The just shall live by faith. But God in his grace gave signs to validate the authority of Christ, who he was, and then conversely in his disciples who we would refer to as apostles, to validate the message that they were to bring. 
these that we're reading here in Revelation 13 are false signs. Their purpose is to deceive. They authenticate error. And you notice the emphasis here is that they're done in front of people for a show with the intent <laughs> to turn humanity away from God's word. And I referenced this last week. It would be foolish of us to say these are merely magic tricks. There's certainly some sleight of hand included here in this picture, but there's spiritual wickedness and power behind these signs or else they would be pretty ineffective, wouldn't they? If they weren't truly deceptive in their nature, truly believable in their nature, then we wouldn't consider them to be of much import. The signs are intended by the two beasts to deceive. Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew 24, 24 through 28, and to lead astray, even if it were possible or if it were possible, the very elect. We also looked at the fact that God sends these as judgments on wicked humanity who refuse to obey the truth. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 11 says, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. By the way, this is in the context of the false prophet who we refer to as the Antichrist, so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It is a pronouncement of God's judgment on a wicked people to send them false prophets and liars that they might um, be given over in their unbelief. We also talked about how the elect can avoid deception. There is a responsibility on our part that we discussed last week, and that is found in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 20, 15 through 20. Jesus reminds us that we are to beware of false prophets. What does that mean? Well, we're to be on the lookout for them. We should look expectantly. Jesus tells his disciples that false prophets will arise. Why? So that they're on the lookout for them. And how do we recognize said false prophets? Jesus said in verse 20 of Matthew 7, you will recognize them how? By their fruits. We're to be inspectors of fruit. The condemnation of the false prophets, we leave that in God's hands. Our application from last week is this, 2 Thessalonians 2.17, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We are kept by the electing and sanctifying grace of God who causes us. You, you want to know how, why is it that I believe the truth? When the world around me is seeped in deception, is it because I'm special? I'm smart. I'm intelligent. No, we're chosen to believe the truth. Think about that. Your security in, in not being deceived should not rest in how smart you are, how well studied you are, how on the alert you are, but our, our rest is in this, knowing that we are kept through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God who causes us to believe the truth. I want to take you this morning to 
our fourth point in this chapter, and that is verse 15. It's worshipers and enemies. <clears throat> verse 15 says, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. First of all, I want you to notice the use of the word allowed. What comes to mind when you see that? Remember, John is writing this to the seven churches. What we're reading here is frightful. It is. If you think about it, in the context of it, it was certainly applicable to them as, as they're looking at persecution of Rome against them. And John reminds the, the reader that it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. What does that say to you? Well, it's second time in Revelation 13 that the word allowed is used. It's the original word in the Greek, didyme, and it, it, it simply means this, that, that God is sovereignly allowing this beast to do what this beast does. Look in verse 14. Last week we looked at this, and it says, and by the signs that it is allowed to work. John is reminding the seven churches about the sovereignty of God that is at play here as redemptive history plays out. We need to remember this as we study these, these beasts. God is ruling and reigning over the wicked affairs and systems of humanity. That should encourage us as we think about how these things play out and how these things um, overlap with church history. An early application point for us to write down this morning is this, if you're taking notes, for the believer, know that God is sovereignly orchestrating the redemption of his elect and the purification of his church. It pleases God to demonstrate his power and glory and his supremacy over the enemies that is the beasts that oppose the church. Say, why do these beasts have such power? God is, the scripture tells us, and we'll we'll get there in two or three chapters. What happens to both of these beasts? They get thrown into the lake of fire. So why do they have so much power? Why do they exercise so much power over this world? Well, God is going to demonstrate to his church and to the enemies of his church that his power is supreme over all the enemy. And so that is why we see the, the rise of these two beasts in their great wickedness. God will contrast his glory and his supremacy in the destruction of the, those two beasts. We need to remember that. So what was the first beast? The first beast is the perverted or corrupt state power, the wicked sword, the disobedient government in defiance of God's ordained role. We talked about that this morning with the magistrate as we're studying through 2 Kings. I want you to see here that the second beast gives breath to the image. This is creator language, right? Think about the, the second beast, the false prophet, gives breath to the image. It's, it's the word in the Greek, pneuma, or spirit. It's the picture of giving life. So here is a counterfeit creation, if you will. And what is the image? Well, in, in the Greek, it's the word icon. 
to be like, to mirror a representation of something else. It is referring to what is very close in resemblance. So what exactly is the image and where did it come from? I want to talk about that this morning and focus in here a little bit. What is the image? We looked at images this morning, didn't we? Second Kings chapter 17. Israel repeatedly made images. So what is this talking about? We, we recognize that, that Revelation, John, in, in spelling this out for us, is giving us symbolism here and imagery to portray, to portray greater truth. And in Revelation 13, verse 14, notice, notice where the image comes from. Look at that closely. The false prophet, the second beast, is telling who to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Who constructs the image? The earth dweller. It's not the false prophet that constructs the image. Notice who makes the image. This, this harkens back, doesn't it? Right to, to Aaron as Moses is on the mountain. And what do the people say? Moses has forgotten about us. He's up there just talking with the Lord. And we're left here to our own devices. Aaron, make us something to worship. And what do the people do? They bring all their gold and all their silver and they throw it all in a pile and say, Aaron, build us this. Build us this image. And it's an image of a calf. The image is the recreation of the earth dweller. We talked about identity this morning and the image, and that's where I want to spend our time this morning. This is the defiled image of God, a recreating, if you will, of the image of God into one of their own liking. So what is the earth dweller doing here? Turn with me. The, the safest way to interpret scripture is how? That's right. Yes, thank you. Romans chapter one, turn there with me. What is the earth dweller doing here? It is the earth dweller that is building the image. What is he doing? The short answer is he is substituting the creature for the creator. Okay. So go with me to Romans chapter one. Let's pick up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Why does God send the unbelieving world a strong delusion? Why? They might believe a lie. But because they reject the truth. The truth. So here, Paul, same writer of 2 Thessalonians, Paul is reminding us that the righteousness of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The unbelieving world is actively holding down, pushing under, if you will, holding back the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There's an active ongoing suppression of the truth here. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, 
we were, this this is exactly what we were talking about it about this morning. Why is it so hard to follow the Lord? He's invisible. That's why the just shall live by faith. But God has made his invisible attributes visible. Even the unbelieving have seen it. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now notice what they do with that knowledge. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. We talked about this last week. The, pr the primary focus of worship is what? Thanksgiving. They're refusing to worship the creator as the source of all things. And one of the reasons Thanksgiving is being pushed out of our culture, and it is, there are people pushing back big time against Thanksgiving celebration. Why? Because Thanksgiving, if you're going to thank someone, that's an acknowledgement that there's someone to thank. They knew not God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now notice this, verse 23 of Romans 1. What did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies. Now think about something for a second. We're going to go back to Genesis. How did God create man? Out of the dust. And what did man, what was man created as or in? In the image of God. Why does sinful man dishonor their bodies? So notice it says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. And God gives them up to their lusts and they dishonor their bodies among themselves. And then verse 25, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There are two things that are mentioned here that are exchanged. And the Greek word for exchange here is the word alasso. And it means to change, to alter, to exchange, to transform. So think about what ungodly man is doing. He is exchanging the glory of the immortal God, and he is exchanging the truth about God. What is he attempting to do when he's doing these things? He's trying to transform it. He's trying to alter it. He's trying to change or exchange, trade it out for something else. So there's a huge clue in Revelation 13 about what's going on. And if you will hang with me, the last part of Revelation 13 that everybody gets worked up about will become very evident as we study this. But there's a big clue. What does the scripture say about these two creatures in Revelation 13? How does it describe them? They are beasts. The word beast in the Greek is therion. It means wild animal. 
were were Israelites to eat wild game or wild animals? No. What were they referred to as? Unclean. But but what are the beast pictures of? One beast cut rises out of the sea. One beast is of the land. It's a picture of an all-encompassing system comprised of what? Humanity. So when God is giving us a picture of these two beasts, what is he saying? My image has been marred. My image on humanity has been exchanged. I don't know if you guys saw this or not, but in 2015 in Detroit, Michigan, the satanic temple was constructed. And, and in that satanic temple, the centerpiece of that temple was a nine-foot-tall figure, about 1,000 pounds, and it's a statue, and it's named Baphomet. Don't know if any of you have heard that. That name should not ring a bell because we don't see that name spelled out in Scripture. I think there are historical variations of it. But the interesting thing about this that I wanted to pull or draw your attention to is the image that is named Baphomet is, is interesting, very symbolic, full of, of symbolism, and I won't go into all of them. But the image is part man, part beast. The image is a man's body with female characteristics. It's androgynous, that is, it's neither clearly male nor clearly female. And it has the horned head of a goat. And on each side of it are, and part of this image, are two children gazing up in admiration at this nine-foot-tall figure. And this image, you may not have heard the name, but I guarantee you've seen it. Because it is everywhere in our culture. I did a little research on this. And if you go to Billboard's Top 100 and you pick out any name on that Billboard Top 100 that is of music that our culture is currently engaged in, likes because it's in the Top 100, I would say 75, maybe 80% of those quote-unquote artists are involved with Satan, occult, Baphomet worship. And the symbolism is all throughout their videos. Just throw some names out for you guys. Maybe you've heard of these. Beyonce. Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, Dua Lipa, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Demi Lovato, Sam Smith, The Weeknd, Kanye West, Billie Eilish, Ariana Grande. Ever heard of any of those? The symbolism in the occult theme of this particular image is throughout their videos. And it it should give us pause, especially young people. They're worshiping. We might not realize that. We come to church and we sing songs of praise to the Lord Jesus. They're worshiping their Lord as well. We need to be aware of that. It's not. It should not shock us or surprise us that they are very clear about who and what they worship in their music. But this is what struck me. Have you ever wondered why the occult is represented or depicted in music and in film by the merging of animals and humans? Is that ever, is that ever 
stirred mm. your mind. Why? Why? If you look at historic depictions of false gods throughout all of history, take Egypt as an example. What do you see? Mm -hmm. There is an overwhelming merging of human beings, pharaohs, and animals. And their drawings, their depictions. And it's like this throughout all of idolatrous history. Why? Why? The ultimate act of rebellion and idolatry is to deface the image of God. Satan knows, he absolutely knows that man was created in the image of God. Why do you think Jesus called Satan a what from the beginning? A liar and what else? Murderer. What did Satan do in the beginning? He murdered humanity, didn't he? He defaced the image of God. Now, Adam and Eve certainly had their part, but my point is this, as Satan in his rebellious state, wants to do everything he can to oppose God. What does he do? How does he do that? By defacing the image of God and the crown of God's creation. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 for just a minute. Why does Revelation 13 depict the systems of world humanity as beasts? Because they're made in the image of who? The dragon. Satan and his design is to, is to steal the role of God, and he wants to recreate and remake man in the image of himself. So to understand the worshipers of the beast, we need to go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And these words are very familiar to you. Listen to this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In the Latin, it's the emoji dei. Not asking you to remember that, but we call that the image of God. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, the immediate implication of that is that man acting in the image of God will do some very specific things. What are they? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Is man the same as the animal? No. In the image of God, as he is created, he is not the same as the animal. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Continuing the same sentence, what does he say? Male and female created, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So a couple of observations from this chapter as we think about man being created in the image of God. Man is distinct from every other creature. Chapter 4, paragraph 2 of our confession says, after God made all the other creatures, he created humanity. He made them male and female with rational and immortal souls. 
What makes man different than the animals? He has a rational and immortal soul, thereby making him suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. How is man different than the animals? Vastly, for many reasons. In imaging God, mankind is created how? With two genders, male and female, okay? Mankind is given a mandate as the image bearer of God. What is the mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve at creation? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, at creation, God's design and intent was for humanity to fill the earth with humans. God created mankind to flourish as, as mankind would fellowship with his creator. Okay? This is all very basic stuff. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. I want you to see there is a very simple litmus test to what we're seeing in our culture going on around us. Number one, the litmus test is this, is what we're seeing for the purpose of human flourishing or human destruction. If I wanted to deface the image of God, what would I do? How would I do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give you a list, and, and this is my, my screw tape letter list. If I were the devil, what would I do? And I'm not just making these things up. I want you to think about this in the context of the world that, in which we live. If I wanted to deface the image of God and humanity, I would make human life cheap and meaningless. To do that, you would create equivalence with animals and humans. I don't know how many of you saw posts Thursday about if turkeys could eat humans, what would we think of that? Humans are not turkeys, okay? The absurdity of that. But listen, this is the mind given over to depravity that compares a human to a turkey. If I am nothing but a turkey, I am not accountable to Almighty God. And there are some of you that probably call me a turkey. But if I am no different than the animal roaming the woods... I have no accountability. But if I want to make human life cheap, I lower it to make it no different than a human than an animal. They worship the creature instead of the creator. That's why Jesus or God says in Genesis 9 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Life is precious. Human life is precious. Why? Because it's created in the image of God. I have to go down to work tomorrow, and I don't I don't relish this, but last week as we were wrapping up the week, somebody emblazoned a swastika mm. on the job site. And I've got to go down and, and talk to the entire job tomorrow. And as I think about the, the symbolism behind the swastika, what is it? There is a group of people 
that convinced its nation and many people around the world that there is another group of people that were subhuman, mm-hmm. that didn't matter, that were vermin, that needed to be exterminated, that needed a final solution. Hatred in the heart of man. If I were the devil, that's where I would go. I would promote, secondly, lawlessness, criminality, theft, division, strife, war. What is the Antichrist referred to in Second Th- 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 <laughs> Second Thessalonians, too many words, Danny. <laughs> He's the man of lawlessness, isn't he? If I were the devil, I'd promote it. See Exodus 20. The end goal of all crime and strife and war is death. And I would do that by twisting and perverting the government. Let's defund the police, right? Police don't need to do what they need to be psychologists. Thirdly, I would destroy and devalue life in the womb by dehumanizing babies. Psalm 139.14 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Our culture has not repented in mass for the murder in the womb. We, we think of um, the Roe v. Wade overturning as, as a victory, and in small measure it is. But guess what? Abortion hasn't stopped. The hearts and minds of our culture have not changed regarding life in the womb. And, and rest assured, God's judgment is on our land because of this. The fourth thing I would do is enrapture the Christian community with the American dream. You know why I would do that? They would be so convinced that family size needs to be diminished and limited for the sake of career, financial security, and fear for lack of God's provision. If I can get the church to believe that their call is not to be fruitful and multiplied, man, I've done something. Fifthly, I would diminish the value of the elderly and convince the culture that they are a drain on the vitality of society and they are therefore worthless. We don't need their wisdom and experience after all. God says in Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Why did God tell Israel to respect those who are aging? Because I am the Lord, your God. Value life, even to the end of it. Our culture says you're old. You're, you're no longer valued. When we had COVID, what were they doing? They were sending sick people into retirement homes. And there was a mass die-off of the elderly. Very few people spoke up about it. Why? Because the elderly are valueless in our culture because we have a culture of death. Think about that as we age and get a little older. What are we teaching our children in this culture regarding the elderly? They're not valuable to us because we have diminished life the next thing i would do is once we've stripped life and the meaning and the value of life away we would give human beings a means of ending their meaningless existence how would we do that we'd call it a physician assisted death we'd call it euthanasia we'd call it physician assisted suicide guess what it's legal in 10 states here in america now Say, well, that only happens in Europe. That only happens in Canada. Happens right here. Why? 
because we have diminished the value of life. If I were the devil, what would I do? I'd do everything I could to keep man in God's image from doing what God commanded him to do, which is to fill the earth. What keeps us from filling the earth? Think about this for a second. What does our culture tell us today about filling the earth? You're overpopulated. Paul Ehrlich in the 1960s wrote a book that has massively transformed how we view human life in our culture called The Population Bomb. That lie convinced many people in our culture that we are overpopulating the earth. But what did God tell Adam and Eve? Have so many children until you get close to filling the earth and then you better stop because you're going to run out of resources. No. God says fill the earth. If God told humanity to fill the earth, do you think God thought about what it would take to support human life on planet earth? Do you think so? We hear it everywhere. In school, in work, one of the biggest promoters in, in the business that I work in is net zero. Think about this for a second. The, the goal of net zero is godless. Why? Because it says carbon dioxide, a gas that God created, that does what? What does it do? Somebody help me here. I'm not a science major. Plants need it to grow. If I were wanting more plants for more people, what would I do? I'd say, you know what? Carbon dioxide, good thing. The EPA has, has come out with a ruling as if that matters that carbon dioxide is what? A pollutant. It's a naturally occurring gas in the atmosphere that God created for the flourishing of plant life. And it's a pollutant. And we must get the entire world marshaled against carbon. Think about the lie. It is godless, absolutely godless. If I wanted to destroy humanity, I would eliminate all carbon dioxide so plants couldn't grow. What would we do without plants? How would we sustain our lives without plants? But all of this is done in the name of saving the planet. It's for the flourishing of humanity. Guys, it is an absolute satanic lie. Did it ever occur to us that if the planet was slightly warmer, that this is God's sovereign, providential plan, that as humanity expands and there's 7 billion of us, we might need more wheat. We might need more rice. Therefore, warm temperatures would allow those things to grow and we would flourish. This is God's providence. What are, what are the, the scientific industry as a whole is, to, is mocking God, saying, you don't know what you're doing. And we believe the lie that is completely opposed to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has found it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. Do you think God cares about human flourishing enough to put the necessary gases in our atmosphere for food to grow? Yes. If I were the devil, I would increase or convince an increasing number of children to surgically alter their bodies. Why would I do that? Why would I convince 
this next generation of children growing up in our culture, that for them to be happy, for them to have peace in their lives, they must surgically alter their bodies. Because the net result of that surgery is what? Fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. You realize that the suicide rate of these children after they have physically marred their bodies is through the roof. They can't do what God created them to do. What? To be fruitful, to multiply. These children are forever marred and, and barred from having children. That's what that is all about. You want to know what that movement is all about? The devil has us fooled. He will do anything he can to eliminate fruitfulness in the image of God. What is, what is humanity doing with these surgical alterations? We're recreating the image of God on me. You're telling these children that God made a mistake in how he made you. Therefore, you as creator must recreate your body because you are God. You're not the creature. The other thing we would do is we would promote a same-sex sexual ethic. Why? No offspring. Think about this. What's behind this? What is behind the mass perversion in our culture? Fruitlessness. God created man in his image to bear fruit. If I want to mock God and I want to mar his image on humanity, the sexual ethic that I would implore humanity to accept is that you don't need to produce offspring. Offspring, You can be sexually fulfilled outside of the covenant of marriage. It's a vacuous lie, but we have been convinced of it. We talked about the exchange. Look in Romans 1, 24. 26 and 27 for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women, consumed with passion for one another. What, what's going on here? Why? Why? Why that? Defacing the image of God in humanity. Those relationships bear nothing but death. Nothing but death. And if we love these people, we have to tell them the truth. We have to. Where you're going down that road leads to nowhere but fruitlessness and death. You would do everything you can to destroy marriage between a man and a woman in the family unit as designed by God. When did God establish the family unit? Genesis. Right here in Genesis. Do everything we can to destroy marriage. You would confuse the sexes in God's ordained role for men and women so that they would be at war with each other. Has this happened in the church? Look at the SBC and the, and the conflict that they're embroiled in right now. 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Satan is the breeder of confusion, and he loves men and women to be at odds with each other because we're confusing the roles of gender, and it's happening in the church. 
If I was the devil, I would get wicked government, that first beast to incorporate and enforce laws that support that support human destruction, all under the guise of human flourishing. The head of the European Central Bank announced this past week that they're about to roll out central bank digital currency. And you know what the argument for that is? It's completely programmable currency, which means the government will have authority to tell you where you will spend your money, who you will give it to, and how much you will give. Say, that'll never happen. It's happening. And yes, it's a hill to die on, in case you're wondering. Europe is about to do it. We're not far behind them, but they roll it out. Think about this for a second. The whole premise of it is we have to stop terrorism. We have to stop terrorism. Terrorists, if, if we limit how you as humanity spend money, it will stop terrorism. And you know what? All in the name of our protection. Deception. And the real coup d'etat. The real surprise victory is you would get the church to go along with all of this. Brother, you pointed it out this morning. Who bears responsibility in a culture for this stuff? Well, the church has, by and large, gone along with this so that they could be considered loving, inclusive, and welcoming. And I don't know if you guys were watching this week. I've talked a lot about the, the, the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church, but did you notice what the Pope was doing this week. He had the first luncheon at the Vatican. You know who he invited? The LGBT community. The Roman Catholic Church is about to change their laws and their perspective on scripture about this subject matter so that they can be inclusive and welcoming. And how do we do that? Well, I, you know, I, I just saw this yesterday. The modern translation of the Bible, have you seen this? There's a new translation out. It is the Pride Edition. And it takes all of the quote-unquote clobber passages out of Scripture that offend the LGBT community. It's a, the modern the modern something translation or version. It's 100 bucks, by the way. All of this is beast worship. Think about it. It's all beast worship. And its intent is to deface the image of God and remake it in the image of dragons, Satan, and the beasts. Exodus 24 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Why? Why is that so important? God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or, or that is in the water under the earth. What do we make images of? Anything that's created. And why does God say not to do it? Because what we're doing is we're relegating God to creature status. And we're elevating man to creator status. There's that exchange. And in that exchange, we are defacing the image of God. So when the scripture says the earth dweller, creates an image. What is it talking about? We're making a God in our own likeness. We're exchanging the truth of the one true God for our redefined truth. Paul, as he is preaching in Athens to a city full of idols, 
in Acts 17, 29 says this, being then God's offspring, it's talking to the Greeks here, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Listen, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What is Paul's argument? God made humanity in his image. We should not therefore think that he is like gold, silver, stone, or something that man conjures up in his own imagination. The defining characteristic here of beast worship is self-recreation. It is the earth dweller who is creating the image. It's, it's rooted in a lack of gratitude to God as creator, and it's attempting to vest all authority with the creature. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, listen, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The unbelieving world doesn't even see that they're worshiping the beast because they're invested in pursuits of self-interest, their own image. So what about the second half of this verse as we finish up this morning? The enemies of the beast. Notice this. It says, and it might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So it brings up a natural question. Does that mean that everyone, every Christian who refuses to bow the knee to the beast will be killed? It's not a statement here of all inclusiveness. What it is a statement of is the intent. What is the intent of the two beasts? What do they want to do? They're, they're, they're not for human flourishing. And they're sure not for those who are bearing the image of God. What do I mean by that? 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, by the way, if, if we're thinking that this is a mass extinction event for Christianity, we're, we're missing the boat. Because Paul says very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he says down in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. If all of Christianity is, is rendered extinct by the beast, there will be no one left at the coming of the Lord. So this is not talking, again, this is symbolism. It's not talking about every Christian everywhere being martyred, okay? But guess what has happened? Many Christians throughout church history and across this planet have been martyred. Why? Well, because the bearers of the image of God resides in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, Colossians 1.15. He, the Lord Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul continues and elaborates on that doctrine in Colossians 3.10. And he said, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, what? After the image of its creator. Romans 8, 29. You might not have thought of these verses in this light, but listen to this. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed what? To the image of who? His son. God has chosen you to salvation through belief of the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. To do what? To bear his image. That was spoiled in the garden. There is a remaining bearing in humanity. That's why life is precious. But it's been lost. It's been marred. Who restores that? The Lord Jesus Christ is the express image of God revealed to humanity. And those that are in Christ, what? Have had the image of God restored in them. Now you say, is that perfect? No, not yet. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have been born in the image of, of the man of dust or Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When will that transformation be complete? It is returned. That point in time in which this corruption will put on incorruption and the image of God and his creation will be completely restored in his church. Why do you think those who identify themselves with the image of the beast don't like the image of Christ? 2 Timothy 3, 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly, live a godly life in Christ Jesus. What is living a godly life? What is living a godly life? Obedience. It's obedience. Is it not living a Christ-like life? What am I doing as a child of God if I'm living a godly life? I am imaging the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. And if I do that, what does Paul say? All those who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. Expect it. That doesn't mean everyone will be martyred. But it does mean that everyone who purposes to live a godly, Christ-like life will be persecuted. Why? Because our identity is different from this world. This world bears the image of what? The dragon, the beast. The child of God, the church, bears the image of who? Does this explain the mark at all? We talk about the mark of the beast. The mark of the child of God is what? The spirit of God indwelling in him. We're sealed with the spirit. We have a new identity in Christ. We are his image bearer. We are owned by him. When we contrast that with the mark of the beast, which we will get to next week, Lord willing, if he doesn't return. What are we going to see? The picture of the mark of the beast is a mark of ownership. It is a mark of identity in my thoughts, in my actions, in what I do, in my worship. All who dwell on the earth will do what? They will worship the beast. Why? Because he owns them. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? God has put us here to call men out of darkness into light. There are those who are under the control of the beast right now who have yet to be redeemed. That's why we're here. So what is our application this morning? Well, the thing that comes to my mind is I must examine who and how I am worshiping. Say, well, is it possible to have idols in our lives? I want you to note that the worship that Scripture demands extends beyond these four walls. 
we can follow the regulative principle in this church, and we do. And we should. But we need to understand that we can get it right in here and get it wrong out there. Worship extends to how we live, who and what we obey, what we see, what we listen to, what we say, who we are. Worship is far more reaching than what we do corporately as a body in these seats. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship or reasonable service for the KGV memorization. (laughs) It is your spiritual worship. In other words, what Paul is telling the church in Rome is that all of life for the believer is comprised of worship. And that puts us at odds in this world. We don't belong. The net result of our spiritual worship and giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is what? Do not be what? Conformed to this world. What is Paul saying? I can't be conformed to this world. I can't fit in. I can't be shaped to fit with this world and still be worshiping God. Do you see that? There's a contrast there. I can't worship God, which is my reasonable service. I can't give him spiritual worship in what I do, what I say, what I think, who I obey, how I live, and at the same time be conformed to this world. I can't. It is comfortable to be conformed to this world. Why? Because I'm flying under the radar. Nobody notices me when I fit in. It's like being camouflaged. Why do men wear camouflage when they go to war so they don't get shot at? The church needs to stop being camouflaged. If you guys aren't, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our culture because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our culture is flying under the radar. It is wearing the camouflage so that the enemy doesn't see them. And pulpits across this land are floundering. They're failing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lastly, and we'll get to this in several months from now, but Revelation 18, verse 4. This is the message of the church. Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That is the message that we, the church, should be preaching to our culture. There are people that are involved in all sorts of false worship. Do I believe that there can be Christians in the Roman Catholic Church genuinely saved? Yeah, but not for long. Amen. God will call them out. And who does the calling? Who has put the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on this planet to to call out the redeemed from all of these idols? That's the call. Put your idols down and come worship the true God. 
That is the invitation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not worshiping the one true God, or if you have idols in your life, confess it, forsake it, turn from it. Pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gracious reminder to, to us of who you are. Lord, how foolish of it is it of us to compare you to any idol, any image that we create with our own hands, with our own imaginations. Father, the, the scripture puts the nail on the head with the problem in this world, and that is idolatry. Men want to worship themselves, the creature, rather than the creator. Lord, you have called us out of that, and I pray for the, the children of God that hear this. Father, that we would examine our lives, help us to identify the things in which we have raised up idols in your presence and confess and forsake them. Lord, we know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're mighty for pulling down of strongholds. We need your word in our lives working effectively, effectually to pull down the idols that we raise up. We ask, Lord, that you would help us open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and most importantly, hearts to obey the one true God who has given us a Savior, a perfect Savior without any spot or blemish, without any fault, without any failing. There is no other savior on this planet that we can raise up that compares with the one true Lord Jesus Christ who has died and given his life as a ransom for his church. Father, help us to never substitute another gospel, to never wander. We talked about drifting this morning. Help us, Lord, to keep from drifting towards another gospel one that would please our, our flesh. We ask for your help with this. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, may we be reminded of your fulfillment of the covenant that you have done everything that you said you would do and will do everything you have promised. We thank you and praise you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.